Recorded live in Manhattan's East Village at St. Mark's Church in the Bowery, this is The Poetry Project. Good evening. How does this sound? Welcome, one and all, to The Poetry Project. Uh, my name is Arielle Goldberg, and I am the Friday night coordinator um, here as of tonight. This is the first reading in my new Friday night series, so I'm feeling festive, and thank you all for coming out for Orlando Tirado and Katie Moore. Yeah. So we're going to hear from Clams, Mercenaria, Mercenaria, an excerpt, a play by Orlando Tirado, and it will be performed by Indika Senanyake, Javier Gonzalez, Nicole Weigelt, Andres Lucas Palma, Morel Cutler, and also directed by Seth Powers. I'm going to introduce Orlando and his work, and then we'll take a short break, and we'll hear from Katie Moore. Um, Please grab a newsletter, if you haven't already, about other things going on at the Poetry Project. I'll make some more announcements along those lines after the break. Orlando Tirado writes from stillness ripe for suspense, for individuals reaching a certain breaking point. We don't know them really besides their breaking points, the portal of how they may know each other. Orlando shows people not really knowing each other, and this is that fascinating, devastating combination. Routines in the most unsuspicious of places. Slow stillness takes place in, for example, the most vacant of cafes in his play The Silo, or the film Medeus taking its rural somewhere to the festival circuit and a brief run at Village East Cinemas down the street. Tonight, Orlando, as I said, will present The Clams, to ask how to share space within a small space, how to get used, how to get used to the cyborgness of state control over bodies inside a remote incarceration, how extension cords can connect to other extension cords, how to eat from a can and smell of it, how to peel back the many ways to cook a stinky thing, how to be horrified with self, then be stuck with self. The phone is now a mirror. And how to be refused by strangers for unknown reasons, all we can do is guess. The home improvement projects are half finished, people watching each other or sensing each other on the other sides of walls, what they can do only be done 24-7. Suspicion is at large. What is kissing without teeth clashing? or TV mounts look awkward in the small showroom because they have no TVs attached to them? What could be happening somewhere that seems empty, brewing, already fermented, just an artist who makes collages from porn in the empty public of a cafe? I met Orlando through his work curating Flex at Kent Fine Arts this fall, a show of minimalist presence and histories taking as its starting point the absence of the visual representation of the body and what this has to do with sculpture as a medium for artists who are trans and queer. Flex also had a free publication with short essays, an interview with Gordon Hall, Orlando's translation of Mario Bayatin's self-portrait. The publication also had lyrics, poems, stories. In general, a newsprint filled with the question of what conversations can reverberate around the exhibition while it's in progress as well as when it's over. This was one of the more urgent compilations of texts that passed through my hands last year. It's not a coincidence this show and publication felt so real to the moment, and it was, as I read, Orlando's first time curating. It seems he works in every medium all at once. He says this is the first time he's done a reading like this tonight, and I can't wait. Please help me in welcoming Orlando Tirado. A bleak, illegally split studio apartment with three adjoining rooms. A bedroom with a Murphy bed, a few books, a graphic poster, a large mirror, a pull-up bar, a large and bulky treadmill, a tiny bathroom with a bathtub. The toilet is so close to the sink 
One can rest one's head on the sink while sitting on the toilet and a kitchenette. General disarray. Home improvement projects half finished, curtain rods with no curtains, walls half painted in various shades of white, and things off their hinges. Lots of exposed cables attached to appliances, lamps, and electronics. The stage is split by a thin wall. The neighbor's actions and sounds are heard from behind the wall. Act one, scene one, darkness. The hissing of a radiator combines with snoring, shadows. A blinking red light underneath the sheets. Hugo gets up from the bed and stumbles across the room. The blinking red light follows him. The sound of a long electrical cord drags across the stage. The snoring continues. The green lights of an internet modem flash intermittently. Hugo opens a drawer, swallows a few pills, pees in the kitchen sink, then goes back to bed, pulls the covers over the blinking red light. Scene two. Five minutes later, light comes in from two small windows high up on the wall. An industrial box fan circulates slowly in one of the windows. From the next apartment, the neighbor gets woken up by her cat. Secret! Secret! Stop it! Shh! The cat meows. Hugo gets up again, turns on the light in the kitchen. An electrical cord drags from a plastic cuff attached to his ankle. From the next apartment... <sighs> Get off me! Hugo puts water on to boil. As he's about to walk into the bathroom, the cord stretches and pulls off. Fuck. He looks at the cable lying on the ground. Hugo does sets of push-ups, sit-ups, pull-ups, and other exercises. She sings. He jumps in the shower. As he rinses, it becomes day. Edgar's bulky body emerges from the bed. He walks into the kitchen, looks around. On the counter, piles of canned clams. Edgar undresses and enters the shower, too. Hugo squeezes shampoo into his hand. Wait, wait. Look how pretty it is. They both stop to admire the pearlescence of the shampoo. Oh my god, you stink. You smell like rotting fish. He scrubs Edgar's body vigorously. Edgar looks down at the anklet. You can shower with that? Yeah. Let me see. No. No, no, stop it. Stop it. Hugo turns the water cold. Edgar shudders and jumps out of the shower. Edgar walks into the kitchen, drips all over the floor. He opens a can of clams and eats the meat with a fork. The fork is bent, so he unbends it with his teeth. Clam juice spills on the floor. Hugo comes out of the shower. He dries himself, walks into the bedroom. For the rest of the scene, Hugo cleans up after Edgar's mess. Edgar sits down on a plastic crate near the window. He speaks with a mouth full of clam meat, spitting pieces of it out. Why haven't you been eating the clams that I brought you? I can't eat all those clams. Last week, I ate clam for three days, and still it wasn't enough. What is it exactly you do again? I operate the machine that separates the meat from the garbage. Disgusting. Hugo dries off the anklet. Edgar lights a spliff. Can I see that? It sends a signal somewhere? Yeah, a state facility in Tempe, Arizona. Hugo plugs the extension cord into the anklet. The extension cord is plugged into another extension cord. Edgar watches the cord drag as Hugo cleans the kitchen and sweeps. The cord gets tangled with the other cords on the same outlet. Poor thing. Stop looking at it. How long do you have to stay plugged in? Five hours a day. From the neighbor's apartment, the sound of a political speech coming from a computer. The cat meows continually and sporadically. I'm getting used to it. See? 
Sometimes I forget all about Let it. Let me see that again. When it comes off, I'm sure I'll, a part of me will miss it. My uncle. When's that going to be? Christmas. My uncle used to make these in a factory. Ergo kisses Hugo's foot. If you want to get it off, I could get it off for you. We could put it on your neighbor's cat. That's very kind of you, but I'm trying to stay in the, on the straight and narrow. Edgar taps on the shared wall. Stop knocking. She's going to think. What is she listening to? Politics. She likes politics and opera. 24-7. Edgar holds a spliff between his toes and offers it to Hugo. You want to smoke? I'm not into feet. Suit yourself. Edgar puts the spliff out on the floor. He stands up, looks for his things. He puts his clothes on, even though he's still semi-wet. Do you have a hat I can borrow? Hugo hands him a hat from a giant gourd. This was my brother's. Thank you. What's that? It's a gourd, you know, a pumpkin. Oh. How curious. Yeah, they're hollow out, hollowed out pumpkins. It's what maracas are made of. Jamaican people make all, all sorts of fancy lampshades and accessories out of them. Brass even, you know, for hula dancing. Right, right. Hugo reaches for the door handle, opens the door. You'll come back, right? Maybe. I haven't gotten my schedule yet. You won't be disappearing three days like last time? I'm I'll hear from you. I'm working double shifts. If you do come back, make sure you shower. Don't bring that clam smell that back, please. Hugo walks out the door, turns around, realizes the cable on his anklet has come off again. Fuck. He plugs it back in. He walks to the mirror. He opens a drawer, gets a bottle of pills, and takes two. Scene three. Hugo pushes the Murphy bed up and pulls on the rug underneath. He wears tube socks and other pairs of socks on top of the tube socks to dissimulate the bulky anklet. The laptop is open on the floor. He wraps the cables around his neck and over his shoulder so as to make moving around easier. He tidies up, sweeps, cleans, puts clothes away, dragging the cables throughout the apartment until they are a mess. They completely unplug out of the wall in a giant bundle. He sits on the bed, looks at his phone, scrolls and texts. He plugs his phone into the extension cord, then that extension cord to the outlet, the other extension cord too. He gets a second phone from the floor and checks it. Everything is plugged in around him, the laptop, the iPad, the phones, the lamp. He looks at every object that is plugged in. He unfurls the cords and reorganizes them. Jonathan, Jonathan. Jonathan. He stands up, goes to the bathroom, walks out brushing his teeth violently, spits into the kitchen sink. In a rush, he hides all the pills in the house, turns off the lights. He lights candles. He sits on the toilet and rests his head flat on the edge of the sink. A knock on the door. Just a minute. He closes the bathroom door, which is off its hinges. A second knock. The apartment door opens. A man, very fat and very muscular, walks in. The apartment is dark except for the candlelight. From the bathroom, the sound of running water. Hello. The man takes a beer out of his bag. He opens the refrigerator and stores a second beer. He takes off all his clothes, sits on the plastic crate, and finishes the beer in one gulp. He sweats profusely and breathes heavily. He listens to Hugo shower. He looks around. In the next apartment, the cat meows. The sound of steps and something being pounded in the kitchen. The meowing startles the man. The toilet flushes. Hugo enters. They look at each other. Hi. Are you uncut? You washed it, right? 
Hugo kisses the man awkwardly. Hugo gets down on his knees. The man looks away, disinterested, then looks down at Hugo as he kisses his legs desperately. Get up. What's wrong? I don't think this is going to work. Sorry. The man switches on the light. Don't. Don't go, please. Don't. Stay. The man dresses in haste, methodically and mechanically. Tries to rush, but instead gets caught up in his clothes and has to turn them right side in. Looks for them in the dark. He looks at Hugo. Sorry. Hugo stands up, blows out the candles. In the kitchen, he looks at his phone, looks up at him, looking for his clothes from time to time. As the man finishes dressing up... Do you have everything? The man looks at him. Why do you look at me like that? In that way? The way you were just looking at me, at my body just now. I wasn't looking at you. As the man dresses, Hugo walks to the bedroom, slips on a pair of underwear. He shows him his body. Well, it's making me very uncomfortable. The man exits and doesn't look back. The door slams. Hugo plugs himself into the extension cord in front of the mirror. With a large pair of scissors, he prunes his beard. The hair from his beard goes everywhere. From the next apartment, the pounding again. He walks into the kitchen, stands over the trash can, and trims his pubic hair with the same pair of scissors. He finds a roll of duct tape and tapes the extension cord to the anklet. Scene four. Daytime, three days later. Edgar enters wearing running clothes. Hey, blow pop. Why did you call me that? 50 miles today. Here. I went to the buffet this morning, the one near my house. You know, the one where the waitresses wear those Pretty, pretty dresses. I went back twice. First, I saw some of those, what do, do you call them? These long, um, twisted, Asian noodles? Lo mein? Yeah, yes, yes, those Chinese noodles. Ramen noodles, vegetable noodles, that's what they're called. Chicken, a little bit of uh, lentil salad, fruit cut up in cubes and other shapes, two bread rolls. Then I went back for saucer and a slice of cake. Wow, a feast. And then I went again. I had a coffee and a bagel and cream. Jam. I've been stuck in this house for days now. Where have you been? Edgar looks at the counter. The pile of clams has gotten smaller. Are you wearing the underwear I like? Which one? The one with the strips. The door slams. Hello? Hello? Yes, this is she. A second door squeaks, then slams. She hears everything, doesn't she? Not everything. Aren't you embarrassed? You should move. I can't. but I'm glad you came back. Don't get used to it. You see, when you say things like that, I think to myself, that must have been just how Lucy felt. How Lucy felt. That's a really fucked up thing to say. <laughs> Especially everything that's fucking happened. Especially everything that's happened since. I'm sorry, I guess I just feel comfortable enough to say anything around you, even my 
deepest, darkest thoughts? I appreciate your honesty. Edgar takes off his coat, hands Hugo a necklace made of clamshells. Here, I made this for you. Put it on. Hugo puts on the clam necklace, touches the necklace with his hands. The clamshells make a clinking noise. Do you like it? Scene five. The front door of the apartment is wide open. Smoke comes out of the kitchen. Hugo carries a smoking hot skillet with frying clam meat, leaves it on the floor in the corridor. He opens the windows, turns on the fans. The electrical cord drags all over the place. He fans the air with a towel. From the corridor, a cat meows. Hugo coughs. He goes to the front door and fans the door back and forth. He stops suddenly. He lures the cat in with the clam meat. He picks up the cat and brings it inside. The cat claws. Hugo closes the door, carries the cat into the kitchen. The cat jumps free. He rests his hand on the clamshell necklace. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He looks at the cat, covers his mouth with his hand. The other rests on the clams. He walks over, pets the cat, picks it up, hums a tune. The only refuse that cannot be renovated seems to be the human mind, wrote Juna Barnes in 1917 in a piece of journalism called The Hem of Manhattan for the Daily Telegraph, a newspaper I don't think that still exists. I just happened to come across this when trying to find texts about the problem of this city. Barnes took a boat trip she said it was 40 miles, that seems like a lot, around the perimeter of New York City one afternoon, and she really could not turn it into a pleasure trip, even though it was intended as entertainment, perhaps, for the tourists on board. The binoculars were the perimeters of the city. A hundred years ago, the edges of Manhattan did not so much excoriate luxury, but dump garbage, which had its foragers, too. The intended vanishing points, such as hospitals, prisons, and what she calls homes for incurables, Barnes refuses to vanish, just as she refuses to swallow the bad jokes of the megaphone man leading the boat's tour. Juna and Katie are on a first-name basis in my mind, in a certain main event of struggling with describing Barnes gets diverted into certain unsoothing ointments of human struggles with perspective. It feels impossible to describe or the expectation for beauty or how beauty squeezes in seems impossible because the systems at large are so fucking ugly. Even then, quote, it took it looked as though the whole of Manhattan were for sale. This was in 1917. And so Juna and Katie succumb in the best way to description by means of utilizing both the specific and the general. Barnes relents. Somewhere, everywhere, over there in that world we had been around. How do we live here then with the mind's landfill as it navigates this inhospitable city that is not an exceptional place, it maybe pretends to be though. That is the mystery that Katie Moore chips away at. Because Katie Moore is a force, her writing is also a force. The force is not without its pauses. Every dayness is more than language, it's utter exclamation. She writes, pretty much. Searching, fucking, shopping is kind of special. I was a compilation of different quotes. 
If you are extremely sensitive to the unseemly everywhere, then Wife, which is also for sale on the back table from Argos Books, is Katie's chapbook. Um, it will make a new part of your body cry. It's a tale of this city in the sheer stretchiness of now. Extreme weather tries us, lemon eyes go to parties, lips get sewn by discourse. There is a war, no, many wars. A sky prone to projected objects like oversized erasures, buildings just being sound as they go up. Mutilation or how to think about history. How, think about history. We are in command mode, no pause. We beg the movement not to take away our own joy. Personhood, love, being reducible. I cannot even spell reducible. Please help me in welcoming Katie Moore. How are y'all? That was so nice. Um, I just never even know how to do anything like this. It needs to be higher. I just want it to be a little bit higher, yeah. <laughs> I just throw it in my face like this. I'll just do that. Yes. <laughs> that's that's best. I just want to. I'll just. <sighs> okay. Um. Hi, thanks for coming. Ariel, thanks for having me and for that introduction, which was really flattering. Um, I am going to read for a full 25 minutes. I hope it's entertaining. Um, the first four poems are these letters that I am writing to my friend Lisa, who is also the poet Dot Devota. Um, and Argos Books is going to maybe put these into a little bound thing called a book. That's Iris Cushing. She is Argos Books also. Okay, so letter number one. Um, if this summer, it doesn't start with them. It starts with, if this summer's homophonic deaths lie there without a pass to the other side, I can stare out the window, Lisa, when you call me up to talk about inspiration. Is this one of the violent, nonviolent tactics set among the objects that had once obsessed us? Between bodies and the ground, an astounding seam presses, and their deaths equal what was respected out of me. And if all the whites regretting a pig more than a house or a safety fence, we're really making good neighbors without detaining another's mourning and without retiring. I might not hear bells clanging into place. The task is not to twin those whose grief. The task is not to twin the holding line, not to bear it twice across, not to give two punctuations and ellipses next to an M dash, born across like I don't know what they are except marks to drive text forward and double down. Rather again, the task is not a dream of life, not a shadow, not an ally with a camera. Rather, it is again not to digress into a shelter of love and camaraderie. And do you love me? Now then, tell me what first politicized you. Was it a shot? Many. Was it a gap between you and the ringing? Drinking water at podiums makes me feel professional. So does this sweater. <laughs> Wolf and Whitney, at the end of their lives, felt the same constancy of despair they'd felt all along that we associate with youth. That particular pressure and press of time, timing and the blind shine of genius, addicts to light, and so they both killed themselves, but we killed them both. I hate how we killed Wolf, but I hate how we killed Whitney. 
how there's no evidence to say we did it, nothing to prevent it from happening again. We visualize the edge of the whole, but we are the whole. Our absolute pleasure creates an absolute demand. And now we blame Beyonce's swaying in that video of her swaying while she sits in the audience on Jay-Z or Kush. And we tap her like speculators for oil in her home state. Houston, Houston, we have a. And we will never stop until that spray sprays sand. <clears throat> Um, I have a roommate, as many of you probably do, and I just think that it's the best thing in the world because they, they tell you what is wrong with you. <laughs> in really loving, smart ways sometimes. I make my roommate tell me how I am, if I'm okay to people, if I'm even warm. She says... I'm a young thoroughbred that only trusts a few people and that is going to kick everyone else and that some people like to look at but know not to get too close, but then some want to and then some get kicked. In other words, she concluded, you're a snob and you dismiss people. <laughs> I don't dismiss you, I said. I love you. Like I said, she said, the ones you love you really love purely and for no reason at all. I landed in that inner circle completely inexplicably. <clears throat> Have you ever played this game, Horse, Muffin, Bird? We weren't playing it, but I've been described in the game as horse, horse, horse. It's a proportion thing and an order thing. I am certainly no part muffin. I have few muffins even as friends. A muffin despicts me. I think you're either horse, bird. I'm trying to tell if it's someone that knows me that's laughing. <laughs> I think so. I think it's Casey. I think you're either horse, bird, horse, or horse, horse, bird. Is this relevant, Lisa? The first numbers game in Harlem raised money for Marcus Garvey's UNIA. In other words, his plan hinged on and incorporated our appetite for order and chance. Isn't it lucky? <clears throat> okay, this is the last of these letter poems. It's the requisite poem about dying. I want to work poor scorned Pluto back into a vernacular we hold close. I'm still shocked it's dead to us as a planet. Nothing can stop me like thinking about death. Sometimes I do it to myself to see, am I sensitive? Will I die before you, Lisa, or you, me? And sometimes I don't do it, it just comes. I'm just walking down the street alone, looking at the river. He will die, he will die, he will die. The author of Wow, Wow, Wow. There's nothing to do but that we want to. After millennia, we rage at nothing more than the ontological fact of every living thing, and that not one of us can bear it. Underwater, with a wash of pickening chicory hell, I remember you. The sky is washing me, jacking my inevitable grief that one day I will walk into, and again and again, as everyone I know or my very self flows into it. And what will the Charles River be to me then? And what will the East and the Hudson? What will they be but arterial notes I've left for whomever else racks and is racked? Um, this is a poem that I wrote in Eagle Bridge with Iris Cushing. And we would at this really beautiful farm and we would just wake up every day and stare at this field. And then we would, I don't know about you, but I would just want to write poems about the field the whole time. And then I got really frustrated, like having lost, I was just like, I've lost my mind. I just want to write nature poems forever. And like <laughs> go into the beauty forever. 
and I just had, I'd lost all morality and anything. <clears throat> Against pastoral love poem. As though the tree was an alibi, the tree was never an alibi. It was and is a tool. They must have cleared it by hand, you say. I braid the field and teach you how. A friend's wife taught me to braid grass and I pass it on. Your braid is a high fence. Mine is a low furrow up to the tree. We vow that trees will be washed of their sins. Have we been waiting? Waiting is not living. Braiding is living. If this clearing's been cleared by geology or supremacy or one man's pride, we come here to wonder at history and how young men are stopped dead still. And the looters come and we plow a braid through to make way for them. When the field floods, the braid gets fat under the gaze of the tree on the hill, as though the tree attests to what they let live. A hawk refuses to rest in the black walnut, preferring not leaves. A hawk refuses even a clear dead limb in the walnut's shade. A hawk prefers a low fence post. A hawk is crazy that way, and my crown clangs in air also, and I also shudder at eaves. What is this shadow that hangs over us? Give me light as my shelter, loot the very shadow. The grass bends toward the keen of braid. Grass spores rise. I want to be with you when the blue sky breaks from seeing this, when loud sounds douse the field, back bending low. As though in paradise there is nothing to protest, or as though nothing protests. How am I doing on time? Great, because I have a 15-minute poem to read, so, okay. Um, I wrote this poem for this right now, and you can tell because there are a few times that I say it's really cold in here, and that's about this room, um, because it's always really cold in this room, don't you think, Ariel? I'm wearing a sweater. Yeah, do you wear that at home? Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> Can you stand up here with your sweater? <laughs> okay, enough. Okay. On, this is about other things too, and it's called on fucking. I am waiting to get fucked. <laughs> Any takers? Um, is there anything to wait for if we've already gotten it? We know about it. Why can't we carry the knowledge of fucking in our bodies? Like a memory of a croissant could be the only croissant we ever need. And it was the same thing that I needed. A very particular thing which I've needed before. I needed to be pushed up against the wall. Writing about sex is horrible. But I had that particular kind that you know before it's going to happen. It stares you down. And it will never end until you drag yourself from the bed but I'm older now, I used to be like, can we stop? I mean, I wanted to keep going, but I'm the one taking it. At the Metropolitan Museum of Art, there is a reconstructed temple with paintings of a ritual on the walls, and over the walls, glass is floating so people don't fuck with them, and on the glass is written which part of the temple's ritual is represented. The text in one section says, take as I cut off, then I will act to your satisfaction, then take it. And the person in the painting does then, like I do now. And since I'm older, I understand that time has only three stages. One of them is when you're getting fucked and loving it. One is when you're not getting fucked that way, and one is when you're in love. And while you can never be in more than one time at once, you can extend them so that less of your life is lived in the middle shitty one. You can just never leave your new friend's bed until you really, really have to leave, otherwise the whole day will be gone. So I leave because of the day, not because I want to stop being pawed at. I mean it has gathered value to me. This time has a particular value. When I thought I would be getting fucked and loving it my whole adult life because I chose to live in the desert with no job for my 20s, and I would just get fucked and love it for 16 hours a day and then sleep for the rest. <laughs> 
And I thought that was my choice, and I'd never have to join capital, which would always be as a worker, and that would put me in the wretched middle time zone, which is always where you are when you're working, unless you're a sex worker, and even then sometimes. Otherwise, work is a very specific time in which you're not getting fucked and loving it. This is why Rihanna is freaking out in her new video for five seconds. The weekend is still relevant. Even if we know that Rihanna probably doesn't show up to work on Monday morning, it's still a pop song, still a song for the masses that have to think about the days of the week in these work slash free time increments. And the only escape offered in both a verse by Rihanna and one by Kanye is to go to jail or do time. Doing time is the foil for working in which people try to buy your pride. Jail time is a time inside work time. It is not preferable, and they aren't saying that. They're saying it looms at those who don't believe in the middle shitty time of not having pleasure. This looming is a threat, and they lessen the threat by showing the insane we're already going. When I get on OkCupid, okay I'm reading for specific words and across and over others. Butch Top, I'm reading for. Octavia Butler. The, the words are outfits, black binder shirts over my eyes. They are effective only as much as any sartorial gesture. Red and yellow together in any year is new and bright or tired. And whoever knows the hip words has access to my take it temple. And or is at least paying attention and I waste no tears. I was always worried I'd lose you, but I couldn't lose you any more than I could a river, its banks, a dynamics loved better than everything I'm given to loving. Did you have to be brave to leave us, America? Did you have to be so fucking full of courage and pomp to kill us? Could you break our hearts if we never believed in you? In you going west to be wild? And whoa, 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 whoa. It's a bottleneck of violence on the East Coast. Once the weather was the thing that kept us from the courage of the state. Once it was the one thing they couldn't control. Acts of God kept us from there keeping us safe. But America, you got courageous and brave for us. And now we get tickets for dying, for thinking we will not die, for assessing that it's not even fucking snowing and the city's under house arrest. Can we be convinced that it's snowing, that we love you and that you're a danger to us? The danger is in the sky. It is thousands of flakes. You can't see the danger, the danger, the wind. You can't see it, but it has courage to come here. It comes in and we are blown. I side eye the air. I love the air and am heartbroken by this blizzard. It fucks me up and I am killed by it. I am dead and heartbroken and non-emergent from my home. What form should my deriding take, deriding you, take, America. We are not speaking. We're not speaking. We're not on terms. Will you let me humiliate you, and will you crawl around on your gold knees or not, America, or not? I've said... <laughs> I'm worried about what privilege I can't tell I'm defending. I've said I'm white and love it. I obviously love it. It is hard not. Being white is a chapel, and being not white is a fastness, and the fastnesses will hold out. But what sneaky praying have I done? I commit to the cause, don't I? I commit to the cause, I commit to the cause, I commit to the cause. I am a white hum, chant at the chapel, and can't dismount you, America. I cannot unfuck what has been birthed as my peer. I'm like, what up, cohort? To be clear, I mean my cohort is my privilege that has come before me and is also coeval with me, and I think I'm secretly, secretly even from myself, invested in it, and now I'm bogging you down with the secret fear, and this is not a tactic. All the white guilt in the world will not grind anything to a halt. It's a tick. Whiteness is always confessional. Take your time at the confessional, the white people say. The white people have time. I mean, we really have it. We made that work schedule. I'm wondering, Kanye, can I go insane enough to give up time itself? Time itself, and therefore myself, as I am made up of great swaths of time. My chapel built on the rock of ages where whiteness is always confessional. Do I love you, America? Have you broken my heart? Did I believe you were real ever? 
Could I even believe that the paper towel holder is at that height that makes you reach up to press the lever for paper, and then a stream of water runs down your arm, the arm you've had since the beginning, and it's still startling to have your arm be cold in one line when the blizzard didn't happen, but it's freezing. You suspend disbelief into your arm. Why the fuck don't they just put them a little bit lower on the wall? The discomforts don't be begin here and nor do they end. I wanna say George Michael didn't go to work today, but Rihanna definitely did. Maybe we shouldn't have waited for Rihanna to write a treatise on whiteness before we confessed anything else. What have we said? Why have we joined the movement? To tell our children about it? The horror slides down my arm. My arm that's never been anything but my arm. Only mine, and only my arm. And I look to my arm to ask why it's doing this to me, why it hasn't evolved from this feeling. I feel so betrayed. It is the skin on my arm I betray. It betrays me. I want to talk about it. I want to talk about how our first love is our whiteness as whites. We always live in the third time zone of being in love because we love being white and we don't even know how in love we are. NPR defends the music of black people to whom? NPR explains the music of Latinas to whom? We don't even know what is our skin the horror slides down. We don't even know, so we let Rihanna slide the little window to expose the confessional, let Jennifer Tamayo, let Simone White, let's say men, let's say the men, let's say the men did it, but I don't know if they did. <clears throat> I don't fucking think the men did this. Once on a beach, I was a white woman and I didn't say it and I didn't have to. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm losing my place. Sorry. And another time I flew. I flew in a flying dream. I flew around and everything was green and yellow. It didn't talk the dream. I woke up screaming for my first orgasm. And that's what whiteness is. It's a dream that doesn't talk and makes you come and scream it's so good. And it's time and space. And if I were you right now, I'd be thinking... To which I would respond, I said, blackness is the fastness. Blackness is the fastness. Blackness is the fastness as in and as described by Miriam Webster online. The quality or state of being fast as A, the quality or state of being fixed. B, the quality or state of being swift. C, color fast quality. D, resistance as of an organism organism to the action of a usually toxic substance, to A, a fortified or secure place, to B, a remote and secluded place, vacationed in their mountain fastness. Would vacation in their mountain blackness otherwise? And the family, having trekked there across weird and beautiful ice, put the ice like this, ta-ta-ta-ta, in front of their door. Where were they? What was it like? And why could not the toxic substance affect them? What shells and razor wire were they, laid in their own ice? Is it a blessing to be seen as unspecific? It's fucking freezing in here. It always has been. It's fucking freezing. And imaginatively performing colonization again and again is not rhetorically interesting or useful. While imagining a family's escape, I'm saying they escaped. They escaped up the escarpment, which was both itself and them. The escape was also them. I'm saying blackness itself cannot be destroyed, but this point is dangerous. 
because it resurrects the very desire whiteness has to destroy it. The question itself begs the fastness to say it is defined as being always either under attack or on the run. Either way, those states do not include its self-destruction. Whiteness, as time says, time is going to serve us. Time will turn the tables. Our very, very time that is ours will implode us. This racist state does not serve us, will eventually kill us, is perhaps even now killing us, whiteness says with surprise, or with at least an unveiling to its friends. Whiteness and time and space can self-destruct, can pollute the very cycling earth and all non-renewable resources. It can turn on itself, turn tide, turn tables. Tides are whiteness and tables are whiteness and in short it worries eventually it will be changed while the fastness is charged with power not all of it can be good not all of it I went to see Selma and was so scared from the opening scene that I would have to live through MLK dying again I obviously never first lived through it do I then live through it more than the people who lived at that time and were able to experience it and grieve it with relative direction? Where can I direct my absence? What is concrete enough to disappear my need to justify and accept an homage? I shouldn't be so scared, but it's not as though I don't need him. It's not as though I don't need Lorraine Hansberry as though we can live time forwards in poetry or any common goal, as though I would have been less sad at the end of the film because I know it's coming, that it has come and gone, as though it has come and gone, as though we didn't need to all live at the same time and place so we could know ourselves and have hope because our loves are also unborn. We are also waiting for them and they don't know. And what if they come after we're gone and we love them still? They are our comrades. They will finish what we've started. We will finish. How precarious the world is that it would be different if some of the art hadn't been made, if some of the speeches actually different. More than a little, but really only a very little bit, enough. Our minds have been blown. They were closed, and now they ever open. Thanks. The Poetry Project has promoted, fostered, and inspired the reading and writing of contemporary poetry since 1966. Consider supporting us by checking out a reading, becoming a member, or donating at poetryproject.org. 